Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview policymakers, entrepreneurs, business executives, and scholars to talk about issues in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao.、Uh, today with me in the studio is、uh, global head of research of J.P. Morgan.、Uh, her name is Joyce Cheng, and she graduated from Columbia as undergrad and also Princeton、uh, Woodrow Wilson School as a master in public、uh, affairs、uh, later. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Cheng. Oh, great to be here.、Uh, and also co-hosting this. Interview with me、uh, is my uh, fellow uh, team member at Policy Punchline, George.、Uh, he's a junior in in the Woodrow Wilson department.、Uh, also, really interested in finance, econ, and public policy issues. So, hopefully, we'll all have a great conversation with Ms. Cheng. Thanks for joining us today as well, George. Thanks. Excited to be here,、uh, Ms. Cheng. Why don't we just begin with?、Uh, I guess the broadest questions, as we always do, just、uh, you gave a lunch talk today, just a couple hours ago in Princeton.、Uh, what did you talk about?、Uh, what are some of the interesting facts that you think we could begin this conversation with? Well, it's great to be here with both of you, and such a pleasure to be back at Princeton. So I talked about、um, the, the the global outlook,、um, you know, macro outlook, including how we're looking at the risk of recession and some of the risk and challenges ahead. And I really had two key themes that I was focusing on. First was the way in which、um, we are,、um, you know, experimenting with new types and formats for research、um, to track sentiment, you know, high frequency、um, trading,、um, and also、um, tweets to have more information,、um, you know, to investors more quickly. And second. Thing that I talked about was just the change in structure in the market since the global financial crisis, the rise of passive investment algorithms, electronic trading, and what that's meant with respect to market liquidity and market depth. So it was a combination of discussing fundamentals,、um, you know, technical factors in the marketplace, but also new approaches to research, so that we have、um, beyond just the traditional economic releases more ways in which we're reading、um, the things that are shaping market confidence and sentiment. Uh, I, I think one really interesting thing that was completely out of my imagination and expectation was this、uh, Volfife index that you guys、uh, came up with in, at J.P. Morgan,、uh, and obviously the firm has kind of relied on these various indices to track measurable effect of different kind of external factors on the market. Always been doing that, but but this is some sort of new indices that you talked about. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about、uh, Volfife and some of the other interesting indices we have these days? Yes,、yeah, so、um, we have a lot of Princeton alumni, and this index, the Wafefe index,、um, you know, two、um, of, the, of the analysts who developed this, Josh Younger is a Princeton graduate, and Munir Salam. So what they did was basically take a look at the.、Um, Trump Twitter archive,、um, which has、um, you know fourteen thousand Twitters in it since he took office, and on average there are more than ten tweets per day. And the whole、um, challenge was to see、um, which tweets move the market. So this is limited to the U.S.、Um, interest rate market, the U.S. Treasury market. And what they basically did was、um, uh, uh, you know come to the conclusion that Trump's tweets had moved increasingly towards market moving topics, most prominently on trade and monetary policy, and you could. Really see this in the month of August, but they found that there's about 146 tweets that have moved the market, which they basically had measured as、um, half a basis point move within five minutes of a tweet.、Um, and we took a look at the key words that move the market. You know, China,、um, you came up number one, but great. Billions, and it wasn't just the Wolfife index that we developed. We've also、um, have a trade war index, which really looks at a CEO perspective. 
and it takes a look at 25,000 um, company earnings reports, you know, the conference call transcripts, and it measures the keywords that, um, that that CEOs are worried about. And it, it, you know, trade tariffs, regulation, um, you know, input costs rising come up in those um, in, 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 in those tweets. Now, another set of indexes developed by a Woodrow Wilson School graduate as well, John Norman, the Geopolitical Anxiety Index and the Populist Sentiment Index. And here are the key words that we are looking at, um, you know, um, relate to words like the populist sentiment and socialism comes up, anti-capitalism, wealth tax. Um, in the Geopolitical Index, it shows that, you know, markets are most worried about a trade war and least worried about a conventional war. Ms. Jang, just to follow up on that, with, with all these different indices and, and so much data coming in uh, from a lot of different areas, how do you guys stay on top of best practices? Um, and, and kind of how are you thinking about the ways in which you're constantly taking in different sources of information and how much weight you're giving to various indices and, and other sources as well? Yeah, so, um, you know, w- when I'm asked about alternative data, people ask, you know, how do you define alternative data and, um, you know, how do you classify it? So there's really three classifications we use for alternative data. You know, the first is the, you know, individual data. So that is things like uh, social media, looking at Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, you know, Amazon, Yelp. Um, and usually this data is not structured. Then there's the business processes, um, looking at earnings, um, credit card data, some of the federal data pools. And then you have data that's generated by sensors, um, satellite imaging, um, looking at construction, things like looking at um, you know, um, shipping traffic, pollution sensor, these types of things. So there are different classifications of alternative data that we're experimenting with, you know, realizing that you know, 80% of this data was you know, created just in the last few years. And then there's the traditional data, the economic releases that come out. Um, but those come out you know, um, not with the high frequency. And there's an increasing need, particularly as we've moved to you know, high-frequency trading, to have more frequent indicators that measure um, sentiment. So this is where we're seeing the largest demand. Many investors are saying, we want to see you doing more with natural language processing so that we can get these sentiment reads um, you know, and incorporate this. So um, a lot of this, you know, the way we develop it is that um, you, know, you basically look at the different you know types of sources that you can you know gather the information for and then you search for the you know the keywords that come up um, and we develop these into indexes so the wafefe index is the the trump tweets the trade war index is more the you know ceo perspective and and then you have the populist sentiment is more the public sentiment and how they are feeling um, about some of these um, issues that are related to the the rise in populism and in, in income inequality in particular I guess the, another follow-up to what you just told us is uh, how does this sort of advent of big data and sort of the introduction of algorithms kind of play, I don't know, not just change the way you analyze the market, but also the way clients come in to seek insights and also how, um, you know, the role of an analyst sort of evolve. I guess before it's more like, oh, I need to make a call on the stock or, or, or kind of make some projections. But uh, do, do you see a more uh, involvement or evolution when it comes to the role of research as well. Yeah. Well, so maybe I can just talk a little bit about the research department at J.P. Morgan and the way that it's organized. So we have around 920 analysts in 27 different countries, and um, we cover you know all sectors of the um, marketplace. So there's the traditional stock research, the single stock research, and we cover 3,700 companies and do the stock recommendations. Um, you know, there's also economic forecasting for about 60 countries, um, and then there's all the FX and the rates forecasting. 
Um, there's quantitative research, and there's an index group as well. And in, and and so um, in total, there's probably about 140,000 reports that come out per year, um, and as many as 400 a day. So you know, each group wow. is really yeah. run by you know a sector expert, and many of the team heads have been there. Like I've been a, a career researcher for 31 years myself, but many of them have been there for just as long. So they're experts, you know, in their field. Um, but what we've had to do is you know continue to adapt and evolve. And so incorporating alternative data, just given the way that data sources are being created, and actually trying to you know, ensure the quality of that data and scrub the data so that we can actually appropriately back test it and use it and have a time series that's reliable. And then you also see that some of the data, it, it could be valuable at certain points and less valuable at other points. Um, you know, like some of the satellite data, there are points when it can be very relevant and other points where it's not as relevant. So it, um, the um, uh, one thing that we pride ourselves on doing, a lot of it is primers, you know, just when new developments come out um, in the marketplace. So you know, like when the ETF market first developed, you know, some of the first primers came out of our group. Um, Marco Kalanovic in our group has done the first big primers on alternative data in the marketplace. Um, and um, a lot of the um, indexes that we've come up with, with many of the Princeton graduates leading them, have been the ones that have been more policy-oriented. Ms. Chang, on that, as your your relationship with your client base changes, how does your relationship with other divisions within the bank, whether it be the investment banking team or, or you know, other uh, divisions. How has that changed with this new insider, with you know different best practices that you guys are incorporating? Well, so there's different kinds of clients. So there's the traditional you know mutual funds, you know macro hedge funds, you know sovereign wealth funds, pension funds. But for a lot of the quant clients, what they want is you know access to more data, and then they develop their own data sets. So um, you know, and and um, so some of it is you know putting together more customized solutions or more customized indexes. But you know, there was a clear need for when we survey clients is that they want to use more of this natural language processing. And, um, you know, I brought up a few examples, but some of the things that the analysts have experimented with at J.P. Morgan um, is looking at, like, Fed communication, you know, and how, um, you know, there's a real trend line. Jesse Edgerton in our group has done some great work on this, um, you know, where he's basically said that, you know, the focus has shifted away from growth and more to um, the language talking about the labor markets um, and inflation. So we can see some of these longer-term structural trends that occur as well as you know, which tweets move the market you know, on a, a more daily basis, um, and uh, and. And, and I think that we've also had to change sort of the um, metrics for the amount of, of um, impact it has in the market and what time frame. So it used to be that before you had as much electronic trading, um, there was more time that you could had to put a trade to work, and that's really you know been compressed by the way the trading dynamics have uh, focused. But we've done a lot of work looking at just market structure. Um, you know, market liquidity and market depth. Um, and I think that's very important to partner that with looking at the you know, fundamental research. Um, and that's becoming increasingly important just given how quickly the market can move. Uh, would you mind just speaking a little bit about market liquidity and market depth, and also how I, I know JP Morgan tracks the market like by microsecond, and you just have so much data coming in, and 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 you can really sort of distill this one tweet's relationship with you know plus or minus five point oh five 
uh, basis point w- within five seconds, uh, f- five minutes of the the market movement. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on on those. Yeah, so maybe I can start just a little bit with the framework. So we put out a report called Paradigm Shifts, What Lies Ahead? And what are the four big paradigm shifts that we see transforming the global economy and the global market? So let me start with the first one is the change in market structure since the global financial crisis, that partially as a result of the types of regulations that were put into place, partly as a result of unconventional monetary policy, you've had the phenomena of a very rapid growth in assets as there's been record issuance out of the corporate market, the development of the ETF market, so a a rapid growth in markets. Um, But you've also had a rapid decline in liquidity as the market has um, uh, really moved to the banks not playing the intermediary role that they had before. They're not holding the kinds of inventories. And a rise in passive investment um, in algorithms and in electronic trading. So by our estimate, for example, if you take a look at the U.S. equity market, we estimate that 35 to 40 percent of that market is passive index investing, and another 20% is quant investing. So your active um, you know, stock selection is maybe only a third of the market right now. Um, and um, and what we've looked at is if you look at you know, trading volumes, that, um, you, know, you, you could have a high frequency trade and can be as much as 80% of some of the trading volumes at, during certain periods of time. So we've looked at how the market structure has changed post-financial crisis, partly because you've had record issuance, but you've also had a change in who the ownership rests with. Um, that's the first paradigm shift. The, the second paradigm shift that we talked about today at the presentation was U.S.-China relations. And how it's more than about trade tariffs. It really is um, a great superpower struggle um, that relates to tech and national security issues. And the third one we talked about was that some of the unconventional monetary policy is here to stay. Um, you have negative yields in one-third of the um, global government bonds right now. And um, you know, 70% of global GDP have had central banks that are easing, 23 central banks easing in this quarter. And finally, the, the, the fourth point we talked about was the rise of populism, you know, um, in large part because income inequality um, also rose in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis. So much of the presentation focused on how the markets and economy changed after the global financial crisis, and that as a result, we've also had to change the way that we do research, the frequency with which we are, um, you know, basically analyzing the data and the market events. And and just going back to the concept of uh, market liquidity and market depth. Um, so we've seen a big um, decline in market liquidity and market depth. And market liquidity is you know, um, just a very simple metric at looking at the market capitalization and the trading volume. But in some markets, this has fallen by more than 50%, as much as 70%. The market depth is the amount that can actually be transacted. And we've also seen that, for example, in the month of August, you had like a, a three sigma decline in the market depth for US Treasuries, which is the most liquid bond market. And so you know, when um, a lot of the questions we get is, why have we seen the market movements occur so rapidly intraday? You know, something that may have played out over you know a, a series of days or weeks now can happen in a much more compressed period of time, and that is a function of the market structure. So, a lot of the. Um, a lot of the shock absorber has been taken out of the market post-financial crisis because you don't have the intermediation that was there previously. What does that mean? Because I know you mentioned how uh, before banks sort of were the intermediaries, and and now it's, it's there's just 
shift to algo trading. So that kind of intermediary is kind of gone. But I thought a lot of people would say、uh, the the market has become safer and more stable because of a lot of the buffers put in after the financial crisis.、Um, well, I I I think though that what you've had is more rapid market moves.、Um, so、uh, you know you um. You 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 have a situation where,、um, you know, a lot of the objective was to make the markets more accessible. So you know, take away the fees, have a more democratic market where you could trade it twenty four seven. But but as a result, you can see you know very small amounts that are traded that can move the market a tremendous amount. So you know, we've seen market moves that can be as much as three to four percent in a day. Um, and、um, you know, I, I think the market is getting more used to this, and you know, you haven't actually had a, a correction、um, that has lasted that long because you continue to see policy accommodation in place,、um, and that policymakers、um, you know, still have a toolkit to respond to this. But I think the question is,、um, you know, are, are, are you seeing that it takes relatively little trading to result in you know, you know, sort of outsized market moves? Got you. No, no, no. I think I think that totally makes sense. And I think I remember you mentioned something during your lunch talk that、uh, it's no longer about single stock picking anymore, like the sort of Warren yeah, Buffett yeah. style of investing. You know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when we look at the amount that's actually traded, that's、um, single stock picking. You know, it's maybe about fifteen percent of the market.、Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of this is that the、um, when we've seen these market corrections, and for example, we look at the market correction in August, we estimate that about eighty percent of that correction was because of high frequency trading. And、um, and so that's a big change in the marketplace,、um, and it's、uh, been more noticeable when you look at the just.、Um, You know, the, the speed at which these sell-offs can occur. So we weren't surprised that you had Treasury yields come back because we thought that more than half of that correction was due to high-frequency trading and the market、um, positioning at that point. But but the point is that you need to sort of watch that alongside the fundamentals, and that even on the fundamentals, there's a need for more high-frequency indicators. The way the market has transformed. I, I just just want to quickly add on to that because I remember、um, I, I was interviewing Deutsche Bank's chief economist Torsten、mm-hmm. Stock last.、Um, Last、uh, spring on campus, and he was saying how algo-driven, sort of this risk parity-driven、uh, flash sale is like one of the biggest market risks these days, just because. Well, well some some of these strategies are、um, you know momentum trends, so that means that you know you basically you 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 have a, some selling that happens on autopilot, and you can basically have a two percent move can become a four percent move, you know, up or down. So it gets exacerbated just because you have these strategies that execute on autopilot. Um, and and so that is、um, you know, a, a, a new phenomena, and because the market has been so strong,、um, you know, generally,、um, you know, the market's been able to absorb it right now. The, the question is, will that continue going forward? So, Ms. Chang, we've talked about the relationship to the client, the relationship to other divisions within the firm. How about the relationship to the public? Is there ways in which banks can be more accessible to the public, whether through you know you see podcasts, you see other ways in which we can kind of trickle down some of this research to help the public, you know, as a whole, and and just have a more、uh, broadly informed. Um, you know, society. So,、um, about five years ago,、um, you know, J.P. Morgan created the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, and a lot of that is using、um, unique proprietary data from our credit cards to look at retail trends and to look at trends like,、um, you know, like w- one of their findings was that, you know, in a crisis, the average household has only four hundred dollars of savings, and if you looked at, for example,、um, the the、um, 
you know, the 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 tax um, reform and the, the 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 tax benefit for household. A lot of that went into you know healthcare expenses. So the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute um, really is using a lot of the data that we have for a bank of our size to look at some of these trends and also look at um, you know how this breaks down in different cities in the United States. So it's looked at the online platform in a number of different um, cities. You know the, the other thing that um, you know, I would say on J.P. Morgan is um, I, many people have seen that Jamie Diamonds, um, you know, is the chair of the business roundtable where they've come out with a new statement on the the, the role of corporates. I mean, beyond just the shareholder, but looking at the whole supply chain into the community. But I think investing in the communities is you know been one big part of um, you know where J.P. Morgan has put a lot of time and resources. Um, you know, in 60 Minutes just had the program on uh, Jamie talked about on Detroit um, as somebody who's been at JP Morgan for 20 years like I um, was one of the Detroit service core sponsors and you know we actually had worked on developing um, a whole index to basically score the prospects for revitalization of neighborhoods um, in Detroit to help them find ways to get community financing so there's lots of different ways in which there's you know connectivity um, you know into the the public um, you know there's also different platforms that we're using now some of the research is available on you invest, which goes out more on a mobile app and to you know, a, a different investor group than just institutional investors. Uh, t- that totally makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, so I remember talking to the McKinsey Global Institute director, and he was saying, you know, just the amount of data that institutions like McKinsey or, or J.P. Morgan have. I mean, just enormous amount of data and the insights on businesses. If you could translate that into publications, you know, being able available to, to the public and uh, yes, and, it's, and it's, the J.P. Morgan Institute is run by Diana Farrell, who had been at McKinsey as one of their founders, and you know was brought in to create something really taking a look at more at the credit card um, data, but also looking at specific um, you know specific cities and looking at the trends. I'm I'm very curious about the sort of um, the the dynamic between social impact and finance, the financial industry, because I feel like the financial industry sometimes. Takes a lot of flack from the, the the public that probably doesn't deserve. You know, oh yeah, like Morgan Stanley caused the two hundred two thousand eight financial crisis. Like those kind of criticism to me doesn't sound too helpful or, or too too nuanced. But I also, I mean, I guess would would love to hear your thoughts on guess. Um, well, I guess for for students like us, sometimes it seems to us so many kids go into finance these days. You know, let's say if they don't go to finance, they go to policy, or they go to grad school, they go to research, or s- things like that. Wouldn't that make our society a, a better place rather than just doing uh, M and A deals for already huge corporations? I, I don't know. Well, you know, I went to the Woodrow Wilson School for graduate school, and um, you know, I had never worked in the private sector. But the reason I've stayed on Wall Street for thirty years is that in many ways it gave me an opportunity to talk about policy because I my specialty was sovereign debt um, and to um, you know, a, a, and to help countries access the market um, you know for the first time because my specialty had been emerging markets so many of these countries really had to undertake a series of reforms before they could even access the capital markets and um, get ratings you know for the first time so I feel like it's been actually a platform where um, you know for me I've been able to you know have have the policy dialogue. Um, and a platform um, to talk about, you know, responsible policies, transparency, you know, the need for reform, what investors are looking for, which has, um, you know, had a role in helping, you know, the, the, these countries um, raise their own financing um, and be less dependent on, um, you know, 
you know, you know, you know, um, less dependent on you know like a World Bank or some that they have their own ability to access the market. And likewise, I think that um, you know J.P. Morgan plays a, a really important role in local communities and helping them raise their own financing. But you know the research department is um, you know a place where many of the uh, you know, many of the researchers didn't necessarily plan on being on Wall Street, so they have different backgrounds. You know, some of the economists came from the International Monetary Fund, or they worked in policy um, previous to that. Um, and I, I think you know, it's actually quite an eclectic mix of. Um, you know, individuals. Um, I think a lot of people come to Wall Street not necessarily thinking they're going to stay there forever either. It's a place to get, you know, um, you know, skills and background. A lot of younger people go back to graduate school after that. You know, the trend I'm seeing is less MBAs than other kinds of graduate degrees now. Um, so it's, um, you know, so I think it's hard to generalize on that for for me personally, um, as somebody who has a policy background. It's been um, a tremendous platform to. Um, be able to, you know, uh, you know, to, to to be able to actually work with countries to raise their own financing, but also to do things like improve transparency. Um, you know, you understand what investors need to think to uh, to make an investment, and um, and it's also been a place where I think the um, the, the things that we're working on in the community have been. Um, Extremely important. So, uh, one institution um, organization I've worked with is Girls Inc., um, which works with underserved girls who are middle school to high school age. But J.P. Morgan has just launched a financial literacy program that has a goal to reach um, twenty thousand girls um, and make sure that that they stay in school. Um, you know that that they you know actually develop college readiness skills. Yeah, you know, one question to follow up to just the the types of individuals that you have at your firm from from all different backgrounds. I, I saw you once called the research division, you know, the ultimate team sport. I was wondering if you could uh, follow up a little bit on this and, and kind of what are you, what are some of the your most favorite um, aspects of this kind of team oriented culture, and is, is that something that uh, you see as changing with the tech revolution, or as uh, certain processes become more uh, automated? Well, I think that you know, for a research analyst, um, you know, so much of what you're doing is becoming an expert in your own field. But what we've seen is that markets are increasingly correlated. So you really need to understand the interplay. You know, as I said, between the fundamentals and you know the technical aspects of the market, but how something in the bond market could affect the U.S. equity market. So that interconnectedness has become even more important over the last decade, particularly with the speed with which markets can move. So if before it was like you know I'm an actor, uh, I'm an expert in one sector. You've had to sort of go to a bigger understanding about how one market can affect another, and telling that narrative and preparing, um, you know, to discuss the risks ahead and the risks that could come up. Those are the kinds of things that I think have really changed, and it's changed the way in which we do the research. Um, you know, that we're trying to make sure that we get to some of these big thematic topics. Um, you know, the big paradigms, just like U.S. China has so many different dimensions. You know, at the sector level, at the macro level, um, and um, and, and and that and and also to you know every region like how does that impact Latin America how does it impact Europe, um, so I, I, I so I think that we've we've seen that it's the ultimate team sport because you need to be able to sort of include more things in that narrative just like you include more data points now. I I think George touched on a very interesting point and I I want to also go back to some of the stuff that you. Uh, talked about. I mean, just this word disruption that we constantly kind of bring up. This reoccurring theme in our conversation today. You know how data is changing the practices, some of the new indices, and we're seeing. Uh, 
but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like, what do you think is the uh, the change or the disruption that a lot of big institutions or legacy institutions like J.P. Morgan might be scared of or nervous about? Because I, I, I don't see how, I mean, for example, I know Google and Amazon, you know, they're constantly under their nerves. Like, you know, are there any startups that's sort of emerging tech or whatever that's going to kind of replace us? I, I think that's kind of less of a case when it comes to financial institutions or government institutions. But uh, would still love to to hear your thoughts. I mean, do you wake up every morning thinking, "Whew, I better get on this, uh, complete this," you know, within five years or five months or five weeks, or else um, J.P. Morgan might not be as dominant anymore. Well, you know, when we look at where we're doing our strategic investments, um, you know, the you know, so alternative data, machine learning, AI are one big area. So that's an area where you know we've been increasing the PhDs we hire, and there's just more demand for that. And there's different needs that come up from the customers. I mean, you constantly need to evaluate which data sources can be the most relevant, um, and different kinds of investors will want different things. Some of them want our opinion. Some of them just want the data itself so that they can actually customize it. For what they're looking at, um, so you know, all, uh, alternative data, machine learning, um, you know, AI has been one area for investment. But you know, China continues to be an area where we're building out um, as they are, um, you know, um, developing their capital markets. And we announced um, in September that China will go into our mainstream indexes right after Chinese New Year's in February, and that's also where we are putting more resources onshore. So some of the areas where we have been expanding more, um, it also includes our index capabilities. But one area where there's just been a lot more demand, particularly from European investors, has been on the um, sustainable financing and the socially responsible investment. So the environmental, social, and governance investing, where we've launched a series of indexes um, you know, on emerging markets and high yield, our ESG indexes, where it really does show that you can make a socially responsible investment and really not sacrifice the yield but there you know we actually you know score the companies we have green bonds in it there's negative screening to take out um, companies that are not following the UN um, global compact um, but there's been real demand for greater um, you know social res- responsibility you know to, um, ways in which you can actually invest so this is a way that you can do a passive investment in an in ESG product. Uh, just uh, you know, taking a step back a little bit, I know obviously you're a Woodrow Wilson alumni, and there's a, a global focus to that. And uh, you're very interested in the emerging markets. You you worked on you know for the Philippines, Jordan, India. Uh, obviously, you've you've touched upon China uh, in, in Europe. And as the chair of global research, how do you how do you balance um, what's going on in all of these different regions who that are changing you know by the minute that are incredibly complex? And you know, obviously, you can potentially have biased. Uh, opinions towards things that you have different backgrounds in or research in. And so how do you kind of balance all of these, uh, you know, areas in which you're responsible for? And like, what are the, the ways in which you stay on top of that? Well, I think the one thing about J.P. Morgan that, it, that is different than some banks is the, the number of local operations we have. So we have researchers on the ground in 27 different countries, and that's pretty unusual. It's not just done from headquarters. And you know, one of the reasons why I had decided you know, more than 20 years ago to go to J.P. Morgan was that as an emerging market specialist, I really wanted to be at a bank where they had operations on the ground um, you know, and that they knew the local market conditions, that you know, as far as political dynamics, you had you know, local 
local employees would give you all of that, um, all of those, uh, all of that background and nuance. So I think that J.P. Morgan, part of it is just that the platform has the researchers, you know, like sort of physically, you know, on the ground. But you know, we we use, uh, you know, you know, it's not just that we're developing new data tools. Um, you know, we also have. Um, you know, you know, a whole range of resources. You know that that we draw on as far as um, you know the, the, the um, you know you know external data sources we use. You know, you know consultants and other things as well as our own in-house expertise. Um, but I think one of the things I would say about J.P. Morgan is that through the cycles, it's always stayed very invested in research. Um, and very complete. So you know, on things even like frontier markets, we have. You know, we have a frontier market index, um, and um, you know that commitment was there through the global financial crisis. Um, the researchers also come from very different backgrounds, so it's not a standard MBA. Um, we have people who were you know previously in the government, previously at the International Monetary Fund. We have former academics, um, you know, who um, you know, are on Wall Street, and um, you know, a fairly broad mix of backgrounds. And I think a lot of people ask me, is it all from MBA programs? And we're doing more recruiting from PhD programs as we build out, you know, AI um, and you know our our big data capabilities. Um, you know, we also have um, you know uh, you know, more um, you know so it, it more PhDs, but also you know master's degrees that are in you know computer science and in other fields. So it's a fairly broad range of individuals with many different nationalities. So that totally makes sense. Uh, speaking of just having a diverse background, I would, would also love to uh, sort of, uh, before we end the conversation, go a little bit into your career trajectory because, I mean, you are an Asian American woman um, at an investment bank uh, and also kind of in a field that is predomin- predominantly, um, I guess, dominated by, by white male uh, traditionally. I mean, so. so I would really love to hear you talk about your journey um, on that front, I guess. Um, yeah, like, did you ever feel that, you know, your journey was unattainable because of your gender or racial background? Did you, how did you kind of overcome this kind of sensation and some of the obstacles you've met um, during your career? I mean, I can't even imagine how much uh, challenges you must have gone through. Yeah. Well, I, I started working um, at Solomon Brothers when I was still a student at the Woodrow Wilson School. And, you know, this was before these countries, it, it wasn't even called emerging markets. They were called third world countries, less developed country, global south. Um, and nobody really thought this would be an asset class. Um, so it was, um, it, it, you know, it was challenging back then if, you know, if you're in your 20s and, you know, you're meeting with ministers of finance and central banks. But I'd say, you know, the most important advice that I would give students and other people is, as in any market, you know, you, you have to develop an expertise and a niche in it and really know your stuff. Um, and, you know, what, what I realized, uh, if, as, if I was the youngest person in the room or the only woman or the only Asian, that, you know, um, if I said something that, um, you know, really wasn't well thought out, I would be penalized a lot more heavily because everybody would remember that. But if I said something that was really well prepared, they would also remember that. So the first thing is that you just have to become a go-to person and develop an area of expertise, be very confident in it. And sometimes it's it's a niche. Um, you know, you, it, it has to be that you are, you know, and, and when you're starting out, usually it can be something relatively small. Like when I started out, I had a number of countries I was following that were smaller countries, like looking at Panama and Nicaragua before I started being, you know, the coverage person who did larger countries. Um, I think that, you know, the other thing I really say to people on Wall Street is you just can't take it personally. 
Um, you know, um, you know, it, and and um, you you just have to understand that you know, like you know, everybody has their own agenda. You can't take that personally, and I think that is sometimes very hard for people to um, you know you know, process that. Um, and I, and I, but I but what what I found was that if you can find a way to turn something that could be a disadvantage into a competitive advantage, if people are going to remember you more just because you're different, then if you are really prepared. Um, makes a difference. I used to say to women in the group, look, make sure you speak up twice so that people don't think the first time's a fluke. Um, you know, when you're in a meeting, um, and um, and I and and. And I think you have to know your own strengths and weaknesses. So there were certain areas where I knew I was not the best person. So I wanted to partner with somebody who really could um, help me and, and give them full credit for it and just sort of acknowledge that I needed to be able to assess it well enough to know what I needed to bring in, even if I was not going to be the expert. I, I mean, I am a you know Asian, a, Asian male who I, I came to the States when I was like 14 to go to boarding school. So I, I'm fairly familiar with the culture. You know, I don't really have an accent, and so so in that sense, I kind of I don't struggle as as much with a lot of my Chinese peers. But I still constantly hear, I guess, two conflicting kind of narratives. One narrative is when I go back to China, they say, Ah, why would you stay in the U.S.? You should come back to China because after all, there's kind of the you know quote unquote uh, bamboo ceilings for for Chinese people. You know, it's like at the top, it's is it, whatever field it might be, it's still predominantly you know dominated by certain groups of people and, and Asian are kind of lacking behind that but when I come back to the states and I talk to some of my friends who are you know Indians and who, who you know do very successful stuff in Silicon Valley these days and uh, and, and they tell me a lot of times it's about your own how, how you make of it how you it's just some just some of the advice that you you just gave us I mean partnering up with people uh, being able to be really good at you know something that that you focus on um, and obviously stand up for yourself and be humble and all those good traits so I don't know like do you ever get, I mean, I imagine you must have been approached by kind of both narratives. And, and you, have you ever struggled and asked, like, oh, probably I didn't get this position because uh, I'm, I'm not a male or I'm not white or whatever? Um, well, I think th- th- for both Asians and women, you, you, you get to this point where there are certain, I think, inflection points in your career. And I, I, I find that for a lot of people in their 30s, that's when your 20s are really quite well defined when you're on Wall Street. I'm, you know, an analyst associate. What you do, it's when you need to sort of get to the next level. And there, I think there's a couple of important things. Um, it's very important to curate a brand, right? So to curate a brand, and that goes back to being the, an expert in something, being a go-to person, and having a niche. The other thing I say to people is sometimes you have to take on the job that nobody else wants to do, and that the problem that nobody else thinks can be solved, and people will remember you for that. Um, but I'd say the other thing, you know, that um, is is really defining on Wall Street is that, like, if you if 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 you want the next assignment, you you need to come up with the idea, not think that your manager is going to come up with it. So you you can't expect something if you haven't come up with like your own vision of how you could make that work or you know what that project could look like. And and I think that can sometimes be very hard if you're used to sort of taking directions and executing something to sort of saying, look, I've created a brand, I've curated it, and I've kind of thought about you know what I can you know move it to next. No, no, no. I th- I think that totally makes sense. Uh, what about the? F- I haven't talked, uh, heard you talking too much about uh, family and um, work balance because I guess a lot of times uh, a lot of women just simply drop off the 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 way when when as they career trajectory. I mean, and and they obviously face a lot of discrimination in that regard as well. You know. 
Well, I, I feel like the, the 30s for a lot of women, it's a period where there's a, a lot of different things to juggle. For for many women, for me, it was you know young children, and you kind of exactly. get, get to 40, and, and then you look around and say, where did all the women go? Um, <laughs> you know, and so uh, um, you know, and 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 so your 20s are sort of well defined. Your 30s sometimes. Um, you know, it it, 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 like what I tell people is that you know your career is a marathon, and so you need to look past um, just thinking that you can necessarily take a one-year view on it and look at it over a longer-term horizon. But I think the 30s can be challenging because that's exactly the point where you're trying to develop a brand. You know, sort of. Um, you know, be, become somebody who is not just you know supporting another senior person, um, and trying to oftentimes balance a lot of different things like raising children or um, you, know, you know and and uh, who are that, that are young. And I think for for women, you you see this is when you lose a lot of women. And what we've done um, at J.P. Morgan, there's two things I've worked on, um, but it's called VP Academy, so Vice President Academy. But I've done it both for the Women's Network and also for the Asian Employee Network. So I I'm the senior sponsor for um, our Women on the Move Network for the Corporate Investment Bank and also for Aspire, which is our Asian employee network. And we felt like um, we were losing a lot of people in their 30s, um, you know, uh, or, or that they were hitting a ceiling at that point. So what we actually developed was something called VP Academy. Um, and it was basically saying it's not just getting people to the managing director level. We need to get them at the point where they either feel like they've hit a ceiling or they leave the industry. Um, and what we've done is we've really developed um, you know, a program that runs over nine months that's um, about um, you know, very specific things, presentation skills or role playing, how you would actually solve a problem that could come up. So let's just say you're a researcher and you made a mistake in a model. How would you handle you know, fixing that and have somebody role playing above you or you're a salesperson and you 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 wrote up a ticket wrong how do you actually go about correcting that and somebody more senior actually role plays with you so there's some presentation skills we've talked about how you curate a brand um, presentation skills are actually big for both women and Asians you know just having the presence um, and understanding also that you know it's sometimes it's not just all the information you know it's how you're able to convey it and get a point across very clearly. So, um, but these are things that over time you know we've you know, tried to fine tune because we also um, you know, have with our um, women's network that on each committee now we have men on it. So we call it men as allies. But that for a lot of women you know their their bosses are male. They're not going to have a female manager, and so. You know, we wanted to make sure that we were just incorporating groups in a way where, um, you know, it was just more solutions oriented. Yeah, I don't know because I I, um, I talked to some, some of my friends and I obviously personally going through the the recruiting processes and talking to people. I just feel like, I mean, if you have a, a room just full of male and you have like one girl coming in, sometimes it just could be intimidating and just it's just harder. So that's why you have to. Get more well, women in there, right? Well, like, that's also why the presentation skills, and that's why I sometimes will say to women, make sure you speak up twice. But you also, like, um, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, and I think everybody has had meetings where, you know, um, everything, um, you know, it hasn't gone the way they want. And I remember, you know, one meeting that I was in, um, you know, during one of the mergers, and J.P. Morgan Chase is a product of a lot of different mergers. Um, you know, I was in this one meeting where nothing seemed to go right. Um, you know, like I wanted to say something, but I couldn't quite cut in, or somebody said it over me, or people talked over me. And I think a lot of people will come out of those meetings, women, Asians, and they're saying, gee, if I only I could do that over again. 
this is what I would have done better. And I ran into somebody who was like a, a key nemesis after that meeting in the lobby, whistling away. He didn't have a, ch- a care in the world. And he's like, hey, Changer, you know, um, um, you yeah. know, good meeting, huh? Tough, but good. And I realized it was just a game to him, right? And so some of yeah. what I go back to is you just can't take it personally. Um, but you have to be very well prepared. I mean, the key thing, particularly if you're a researcher, is that you're, people are going to you as an expert on something. So that's the first thing. But then you have to be confident enough to present it um, and to have people remember the way you presented it, to curate a brand. And you can't take it personally. And you have to sort of accept um, you know, failure and move on quickly and go on to the next thing. But I also think the way that markets are interconnected, the way that you sort of tell a narrative um, and look at themes that are getting increasingly linked together. So like as I said, that in markets, I think that you know talking only about the fundamentals but not about the technicals, it just doesn't quite work. Um, or if it's just traditional data and it's not some of the alternative data, it, you just have to incorporate more things. No, this is such an impressive story. Yeah, I, I mean, I, but but I don't know. I, what about any regret or failure that you think that the biggest failure you've experienced in your life? Because I mean, George and I look at you and hearing this story. I mean, we we obviously nobody would discredit that that you're extremely successful and highly respected and going through this journey must be so tough. But was there ever a moment where you felt, oh, probably wouldn't make it, or, or wow, I wish I could well, done that again. Well, for me, Wall Street was sort of an accident. You know, I was a public policy student, and and I had not worked in the private sector. But w- what I loved was watching markets, and I loved that I could be opinionated. Um, and I actually loved that if you watched markets, um, you know, e- every day you kind of reset the clock in many ways. The market is different every day, um, but. I think that um, you know the, the 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 things that I think that the Woodrow Wilson School training for me was um, r- really key because there was a big focus on presentation skills and synthesizing a lot of information quickly and then thinking about what the policy implications are and writing it up quickly and communicating it quickly. So in a lot of ways, the fact that I had a non-traditional background I think helped me more. Um, and and because I I didn't go in as sort of focused on this is going to be my long-term career, I went in just sort of. Um, you know, you know, as, as as a student working two days a week, um, I think I probably took more risk um, just because I, I wasn't as focused on having to do everything a certain way, the way that I actually came into um, the the marketplace. But I I think what I've really appreciated um, just about you know the Princeton um, experiences, you know, the way the work world has moved right now. Uh, it used to be you could look at geopolitical risk, and people would say, well, it's um, you know it, it, it's noise, but it's not the trend. Now geopolitical risk is part of the norm. And um, a lot of the people who've come from Princeton who've developed um, our, our tools, um, you know, have had that ability to really synthesize that information and come up with very creative ways to look at it that are um, real time um, and you know inclusive of a lot of different types of data sources. Yeah. So we have two two quick more uh, two quick questions. Yeah. To, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, what is one contrarian view that you hold that maybe others would disagree with, or or something that uh, you know? differentiates you from some of the other guests we've had uh, on the show or that you interact with or that you uh, interview with, you know, whatever it may be. 
Yeah, so I would go back to the paradigm shifts. Like, you know, so there are a lot of people who are like, you know, how much has the framework, you know, changed? And I would go back to the paradigm shifts. Like, I think that with U.S.-China, it is more of a great power struggle. I think you're going to be watching that for a really long time. So thinking that you're going to get quick resolution on this, I mean, it's related to national security issues and, um, you know, you know, technology transfer and, you know, um, and issues that I think that for anyone who watches markets, it's it's going to be with us for a very long time. And you know, there's you know a saying in in Chinese that when you know when when two elephants fight, it's the, the grass that suffers. And so a lot of you know what we've looked at is sort of the fallout that's come to Europe and other places where you really can't say that it's you know the global economy is just too interconnected when the the first and second largest economies you know, are in a conflict. Um, you know, I also think that on the unconventional monetary policy, this is where we've had, you know, a view that you, you could see the U.S. going towards zero interest rates, and you could over the next decade see China going towards zero interest rates. And I think that's one of the views that we've had that um, probably isn't talked about as much. But when we look at what is happening, there's a real, you know, Japanization Japanization, yeah. A phenomena that you can see that in Europe with the negative yields, but there's a question on whether you could see zero interest rates in the U.S. And there's a question that even with China, could that uh, come about over time when you look at the buildup and the debt burden, the size of the fiscal deficit, and the cost of servicing the debt? So, on areas where we've been just doing more research, it's just kind of you know to look at that. And you know, when we were started writing about this a year ago. It, everybody's like, oh, that's a very long time away. But now you look at the world, and a third of global government bonds have a negative yield. Two-thirds of Europe has a negative yield. And when we first started writing about this last fall, a lot of people were saying, well, this is we're in normalization. This is very di- distant. But what you've seen is that this has actually played out you know, more quickly than a lot of people would have expected. Totally makes sense. Yeah, the zero lower bound issue, and uh, yeah, it's contagious sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the populism, I think, is also not just a temporary trend. I, I think that is a function of the income inequality and it's not just a, a you know it's a developed market and an emerging markets phenomena and, and the kind of like the, the more s- small movements and and you mean you mentioned how the, the keyword socialism has become well yes yeah, so, so in, um, the the populist sentiment index what John Norman who's a Woodrow Wilson school grad had created um, you know when he looks at the keywords that come up I mean it's you know anti-capitalism wealth tax um, you know socialism there isn't a big understanding from the general public about tariffs um, you know or, or even really that China is like a key election issue it's really on this income inequality issue totally uh, I know you have to go so uh, we'll end the show with just one last quick thing so the name of our podcast is policy punchline so I want to ask you at the end of the show what's what's the punchline here for our Listener, what's the what's the takeaway about maybe your career, maybe about J.P. Morgan? Aside from the market insights, what's the policy punch that you should take away? Adapt to change. Adapt to change, um, just like your career and and J.P. Morgan right now. It's a it's a great message. Yeah. I, well, it was really uh, just such a pleasure to be back at Princeton and to meet both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Today. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and to our listeners, um, this concludes our uh, interview with Miss Joyce Chang. She is the global head of research at J.P. Morgan. Uh, please uh, go check out their. Uh, reports and and some of the insights from J.P. Morgan Institute and uh, their podcast and follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. 
We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.